Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. We're currently immersed in eutopia, an exploration of what it means to be European and what we mean by Europe. I've spent quite a bit of time working with artists in Brussels and become fascinated by its divisions, languages, governments and communities. I began to see the city as a mini microcosm of Europe and its current challenges and I wanted to learn more. So back in June 2019, we held a live Dash Café at Richmix on Brussels, its art, culture and the legacy of colonialism on the city today, together with poet and producer Elizabeth Severino Fernandez, a.k.a. Miss Ellie, prominent academic and activist Eric Corin, artist and architect Laura Singiumba, and writer and journalist Owen Hatherley. We kicked off the evening with some beautiful poetry from Miss Ellie. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? All right. Let's, let me try that again. It's, uh, it's, it's only the second time in London. So, hello, everybody. How are you? All right. It's London enthusiasm. Great. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, I have a little confession that uh, I haven't been performing. So, I'm a performer, but I'm also an organizer, and I'm taking my first steps in uh, directing theater. So, I haven't been performing for a while. And I felt, uh, because of the theme, um, that it would be interesting to start with one of my first poems, uh, which is like um, an ode to the immigration of my parents. So, I'm half Portuguese, uh, half Dominican, and I live in Brussels right now. So... Here goes. I wasn't born in the ghetto. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm brown. And not born in the ghetto. But my father was. See, my father comes from the ugly, beautiful, intoxicating, infectious, exhilarating Caribbean ghetto. And I? I inherited his love of life, his rage, his charm, his flaws. I wasn't born in the mountains. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm brown. But my mother was. See, my mother comes from these precious, never-ending, soothing, and suffocating Iberic mountains. And I, I inherited her pride, her loyalty, her will to survive, her humbleness, her flaws. Brown. I was born on the platform of Catholicism, capitalism, colonialism, ancient history. I moved up north, plain and gray, just plain gray. Cradle of a new enslaving power. People here don't fight. They talk, discuss, debate, but they don't say, they don't see, they don't mean to care. Brown, but apparently yellow in the wintertime. Now, who can understand or comprehend three nations rolled into a fourth, moving towards a fifth? Slaves and slave drivers clash when you're brown. History is past, but past sometimes takes over. See, they're not my memories, but I can feel the pain. They're not my memory, they're my heritage. Never in vain. My father gave up his dreams for his family. He gave up his future, mental sanity, so much talent, cheap lies and trapped in legal slavery, half of the time, half a man, old and new scars, disappointments, black and tormented. Never in vain. My mother gave up her dreams for her family, worked hard every night and day, but mostly nights, never said a word, while her innocence was sold for the rent and food, never complained, strong and proud, but inside her heart, My mother's big heart has been broken so many times, her dream never mentioned, glued back together, taped and boxed back together, and I know she lost some pieces, never in vain. I'm brown, I'm not black, I'm not white, and I'm not yellow, except in the wintertime. Thank you. We then embarked on a fabulous spinning conversation about Brussels. I turned to Eric for more context and his perspective on Brussels. Eric, are you ready to take us away? Fantastic. Brussels is a small world city. It's a small city, 1.2 million inhabitants, but it is as far as connectedness with the world or with other cities, as far as diversity, it is at the level uh, of London, Paris, uh, uh, and even New York. And so... 1.2 million, and when we speak about Brussels, we speak about 19 municipalities. That is a city region. The agglomeration is 1.5 million. The metropolis, near to 3 million inhabitants. It is a horizontal metropolis. One of the elements you have to to understand uh, looking at Brussels, it's not like Paris or London, which are high tower, uh, concentrated, and where the wealthy people live in the city centre, 
our uh, elites are anti-urban. They prefer to, to live in the periphery, and it's poor people that occupy the city center. The city is very fastly growing with more than 10,000 every year. In 1968, there were already more than one million inhabitants in the capital of Belgium, white, middle-class, liberal people. In the midst of the 90s, we lost net 100,000 inhabitants, which, uh, which means, in fact, that three to 400,000 people left the city. Since the beginning of this century, even, one million Brusselers went to live outside uh, uh, Brussels. And so the city is renewing itself very, very fastly. And since 2000, you have a demographic boom that brings us now over 1.2 uh, million. And that suburbanization process continues. So Brusselers uh, tend to leave when they have kids. They tend to leave and go in the periphery. So the, the, the origin of the demographic boom is natality. It's a young city growing younger, and the main uh, source of population growth is ongoing foreign immigration, which means that the city is becoming younger every time, even more diverse, uh, uh, and or relatively poorer also, with a, a number of people uh, without uh, a job, without uh, uh, incomes. Eh? Here you see the map of the, the Belgian city regions, very connected to each other, and with a very large periphery, uh, as you see uh, for Brussels, connected with the other Belgian cities on a daily basis, but also connected even on a daily basis with other great cities in Europe and that you can reach uh, in less than two hours. And that explains, for instance, why the most important foreign nationality in Brussels are the French people. You have more than nearly 60,000 French people resident uh, residing in Brussels and in one point uh, one hour, 20 minutes, they are in the center of Paris, which is faster uh, from the Parisian banlieues uh, to come to, to, the, to the center. They can buy a very uh, nice bourgeois house for 20% of the price of Paris. Belgium doesn't have a tax on wealth. And so that's a, uh, a number of good reasons to live uh, uh, in uh, Brussels. And so Brussels is, in fact, a very large horizontal metropolis connected very much. And that is one of the things... I, I, maybe we have to discuss uh, tonight, that is that urbanity is in fact a space of flows, is connectedness with other cities. The cities is not a country, is one of my latest uh, publications. Uh, a city is of another kind, and one of the elements uh, to that is connectedness with other urban regions. So that's the Europe, if we discuss about Europe, that's the Europe that we have to imagine. And we have to leave that story of Europe, of member states, of territories. I'm not going uh, in detail uh, uh, into that argument, but that's, let's say, the, the mental map that we have to, to have to learn about Europe. And in that sense, of course, Brussels, as the capital of Europe, uh, has a future uh, to, uh, to defend. I, I will uh, end by marking that big difference. For me, national culture is based on history, on a common history, on a narrative of a common history that delivers tradition, tradition delivers identity, that is represented both in arts and in, uh, and in politics, and is territorially bounded, is a container territorial. If in Brussels we have to build social cohesion on that basis, a city with 72% of the population without Belgo-Belgian references, coming from outside, coming from elsewhere, and in a country where the two communities, the two ethnic communities, have their own institutions, uh, where there is no Belgian or no, no, uh, no Brussels uh, integration mechanism, you either become Flemish or French-speaking, uh, of course, which are both in a minority in that city, you cannot make on this national or nationalistic basis you cannot have social cohesion. And so from a city, and that's also a part uh, of the discussion, in a city, cohesion comes from a common destination, from, a, from the future, in fact, from a future project. You will tell me the future doesn't exist. No, we have to invent it, we have to make it, we have to, to imagine it as we imagine a common past, because the common past of the country doesn't exist either. 
it is also a narrative, it is also a construction. So the project, and the project is hybrid, is not uh, with a very strong identity. Cities are hybrids, are uh, multi this multicultural uh, in fact, and that's why representative democracy is in a crisis in all the urban contexts. Why you need participation, co-production uh, in cities, and that is much more in the, based on networks than it is based on territories. In that sense, a city is not a country, and uh, uh, as Belgium is an evaporating country, uh, basically without uh, really, uh, uh, let's say, landing in a new type of structure, Brussels is really making uh, urbanity based on arts creation, bricolage uh, on the basis of, uh, of difference. So a city is not a country, and one of the publications we made is exactly reinventing a name of Brussels, Bruxelles, Brussels, Brussels, and making the three languages that are the lingua franca of that country into that name and trying to uh, impose Brussels as a new name for that, uh, uh, for that city. Uh, and in that sense, I think that Brussels could become, could become the city of Europeanness, whatever that may mean. That was fantastic. And um, please come and sit down again. Um, um, I'm looking forward to trying to understand what Europeanness means. But I've got one question uh, which I want to ask you all, but I also want to ask, ask people in the audience who I know um, are uh, that we have some we have some people perhaps from Brussels or at least Belgium from Belgium in the room. Do you do you consider, despite telling me all of that, do you still consider yourself Belgian? Yes, that's my ID card. Uh, at the level of citizenship, at the level of politic political uh, uh, obedience, you can say, yes, we are Belgian. Yeah. Most and, of us are Belgian. And, and the Flemish? And where does Flemish come into that? You, is uh, that Flemish is a tribe. Yeah. It's an ethnicity. Uh, Flemish is not a country. Right. Uh, so, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a language, it's a culture. And, and you have to admit that uh, at the start of Belgium was the idea of making a French-speaking Christian nation-state, and that failed that project for one of the good reasons. That's the majority of the population spoken of the language. Mm. And in that sense of Flemish, that is, a, that is Dutch uh, in reality, is a cultural uh, reference, and the nationalists, of course, which is only a minority uh, in that population wants to make it into a state, into a nation state, but that's just a political project. And, and, and before we come to Laura, how, how many people in the room are Belgian? Quite a few. And do you all, are you all comfortable, having had that introduction, are you all comfortable referring to yourselves as Belgians? Yeah? And, 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 and do you come from Brussels? No, some of you. A few of you. Oh, we've got... Any, any thoughts and reflections on, on, on anything that um, Eric brought up before we, before we start talking about it as a, as a group? Anyone? Yes, Christoph. Sorry, I know that you're Christoph. Speak, speak. Hi, good evening. Um, this might be an easy one for Eric, but um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Belgian. I grew up in Brussels. I have German and American passports. And I've always enjoyed being at home in Brussels and now in London since 2010. Um, I was wondering whether um, you might say a little bit about um, city citizenship, about um, appartenance, about um, city identity and urban identities, and um, what this might look like in a more citizenship-based future that especially we're talking about here in the UK a lot. Uh, personally, I have not registered for leave to remain, what is it? Um, and have no intention to. I had my rights intact arriving here in the UK, being German for all intents and purposes in Brussels. It was never a need to become Belgian. Um, I was registered at the commune, so um, yeah, I'd be interested in... Um, some thoughts from everyone on that. Does anyone want to take that now? Well, uh, I think the, uh, you, you know it. Uh, my, my, one of my, let's say, developing idea is urbanity is not nationality. Uh, since the 19th century, and for Britain that is even earlier than that, 
the state has been based uh, on, uh, let's say, uh, an idea of the same kind of people. In the country, you have the same kind of people. Uh, and and th those people uh, which have a culture, we have a language, we have one culture, one language uh, ideally, and thus one territory, that's the idea of the nation, uh, of the nation state. Uh, as I tried to explain in, in one of the, the last slides, a city cannot be built on that. You live together on the base of difference in a city and not on the base of having uh, commonality, not cultural, not necessarily one language. In Brussels, if you see the figures, uh, it's the most diverse city of Europe, the second most diverse city in the world after Dubai. What you really have in a city is we have to learn to live together on the basis of difference and not everybody that is there is a citizen. And in that sense, of course, urbanity, I think, is a, post, is a form of post-national uh, society I really think that cities exist since 5,000 years. Cities will exist for the next few centuries. The countries, I'm doubtful that the countries are going to exist at the end of this century. At this point, Laura Tsengiyama talked about a couple of her recent artworks. Laura is Belgian-Rwandan, an identity which informs her practice as an artist and an architect. She showed images from various projects, including a recent work, people in which an ice sculpture of King Leopold II slowly melted. Given the nature of our event, trying to understand the divisions across Brussels, it was ironic and deeply unfortunate that Laura got caught in the crosshairs of Flemish-French bureaucracy around logistics for the event. She has requested that we remove her voice from this podcast. We respect her decision and encourage you to look at her political and powerful pieces. It was extremely moving to listen back to this podcast in a week when America and the rest of the world has been shaken by the brutal murder of George Floyd. Laura shared insights into racism being embedded within art, folk culture and urban planning. Her work, and the work of so many artivists out there, remains utterly vital. We have much work to do. And now, back to the recording. I lived in, uh, as a child, I lived in Ghent, which is another city. Then uh, my teenager years in Antwerp, the accent uh, in Dutch comes from Antwerp. And now since the last few years, I consider myself a refugee in Brussels because we have a, a very right-winged uh, mayor in Antwerp and is uh, changing policies a lot as well uh, on a cultural level. And I'm, a, I'm an artist organizer, so that's really important for me. Um, and Brussels was also the one of the first places that I really felt at home, even more so than in Antwerp, which was very uh, a lot more formative for me. But Brussels, because everybody, a lot, most people have these di uh, diverse paths. I feel like there's this kind of togetherness, maybe with the. It, it doesn't matter where you're from. You're, you're in Brussels, and the first question is also. What language are we speaking in this conversation? Are we speaking Dutch, French, English? What? What? And in in other parts of the country, people um, always talk to me in English. They don't. They will never assume I speak Dutch or French, which I speak both. Uh, but they will always talk to me most of the times in English. And Brussels was the first time I felt like, oh, but they ask this question to everybody. Everybody can be from somewhere else. So, and I feel like the identity of the people in Brussels is also that, that, that shared, you might be on the way through, you might be living here for one year, you might be here for 20 years, but right now you're a Brusselaire, you're a Brussels person. We're seeing a very positive light, and I'm sure that there, is other, there are other things to discuss. Um, this evening is uh, part of the London Festival of Architecture. And uh, when we were thinking about the people and the, all these the issues around Brussels, we can't really ignore the structures of the city and the architecture. And that's really why uh, I asked Owen to, to be part of this evening, to give us the kind of the, the context around the city. Um, Owen, do you fancy picking up from where we've got to? Um, I mean, I'm um, the only person who's not lived in Brussels at any point. Um, so my impressions of it are fairly superficial, and they're sort of trying to sort of, I'll sort of try and make a virtue of that superficiality. Um, so I wrote about Brussels in a book published last year called Trans Europe Express, which um, the working title for which was actually Eutopia. So it's good that I didn't st didn't take that title before it was used here. And 
It was really about trying to uncover, or sort of trying to sort of prove a point about the perception of continental Europe on the part of people within the UK, particularly people that are very enthusiastic about the European Union, which I think um, almost all architects in Britain fall into that category. And there's a sort of general perception that there is sort of elsewhere, on the other side of the channel, there is a less, let's say, Anglo-Saxon capitalism, which is not pervaded by the sort of dominance of the market and property developers and speculation, and instead has more of a culture of planning, has more of an enduring welfare state and so forth. Owen unpacked this a little more, explaining that Belgium was one of the first countries to industrialise and how this change impacted the capital's architecture. He talked of streets in Brussels where every building looks entirely different as a result of a laissez-faire approach to town planning. I'm going to pick us up again a little further into the conversation. I was sort of slightly surprised this wasn't mentioned already because it's the, the biggest um, Brussels architectural cliché, and I'm going to mention the cliché, um, which is what was called in the 1950s and 1960s Brusselsization. And this referred to the... Um, extremely unplanned replacement of these kind of um, bourgeois tenement set, um, sort of working class tenement cityscapes with gigantic office blocks. And this happens um, probably around the time that Brussels becomes the sort of a headquarters of NATO, but, bef- little bit, but before it becomes the headquarters of the European community and later the European Union. So it's already kind of happening. that it becomes this place where office developers got to do what they like at a level which I think in Western Europe is rivaled only by Birmingham. But so you'll just have this kind of, you know, uh, an ordinary street will suddenly have like a, a 30-story glass block. Um, is that, do you think, just, do you, is this because the planning slips through the net between the different municipalities and the different governments? I, I, I think it's partly to do with what I was sort of trying to touch on about, um, about the kind of, it being a very early capitalist country. Um, so you have much more strength of kind of laissez-faire capitalism, like you do in Britain. Um, in, whereas countries that I think industrialised quite a bit later, or that planned their industrialisation as France did under Napoleon III and as Germany did under Bismarck, they had this kind of state-driven industrialisation, which meant that there was a kind of much more kind of state control over what, what, what happened when they did it. And that wasn't really the case in Belgium, and, and much in the same way it wasn't really the case here. That has, I think, only been, been, only been sort of emphasised by the European Union's building projects. And I think Brussels is a very, very interesting and underrated city with, as sort of mentioned, the exception of the EU quarter. And I'm generally a fan of bureaucratic architecture. I think there's lots of fantastic bureaucratic architecture out there, except in the EU quarter of Brussels, um, which is just awful. Um, I'm, I'm always sort of my, my just jaw-dropped at how bad the buildings are there. And I think it's... Um, partly out of this kind of urge to, partly to not offend in any particular way, that you have to sort of represent Europe, and there's no, you know, no one can entirely decide what this thing is, so you kind of have these kind of very, very kind of dull, colourless office blocks that are not particularly modern, not particularly postmodern, not particularly tall, not particularly low, just these kind of hulks of blue glass. Do you think, and I suppose there's a question for you all, is, it, is, that, is, that, is that decision to make this architecture particularly bland, this European architecture, is that sort of a deliberate decision not to take over the city, do you think? Um, I'm not sure, because, of course, in terms of commuting, it has a huge effect on the city. I mean, you know, obviously Brussels is totally transformed by this. Um, although I don't think they're fantastic, if you compare them, the buildings in the centre, the, the, the EU buildings in Brussels, to those in Strasbourg, um, the Strasbourg ones are a lot more interesting And I think that's probably because of the fact that, as well as, you know, the fact that they're probably visited somewhat less, that the kind of Court of Human Rights and the Parliament in Strasbourg are also partake of that French state planning. Architecture is very important. Visuality is very important. Um, Town planning is very important. And so they have really good, you know, big office blocks. I I was going to went a bit on, on, on... on some of the things that have already been mentioned, so I'll keep it brief because they've already been mentioned, um, which is the colonial legacy in in Brussels. Um, I think one of the things that is so um, kind of apparent when you when you when you go, when you go there is the fact that it's so in your face. I mean, obviously, you know, 
Britain has this all over the place, but it's generally, I think, harder to spot. A good example of this would be the Cecil Road statue on the High Street in Oxford, um, which I imagine most people in Oxford didn't know was there until the Roads Must Fall campaign. The one of the reasons I think the Brussels example is extreme, partly the scale of the genocide we're talking about, what Leopold II did, is on the level of Stalin or Pol Pot. Like, there's, there's, there's no debate among the, about this among historians. It's, it's mass murder on, on, on an unbelievable scale. Um, but also on the kind of the, the, the sort of presence in the townscape. Um, and this, again, was very, very deliberate. Um, in Neil Asherson's book, the 60s book, but I think which kind of still holds up quite well, on Leopold II, called The King Incorporated, he argues that one of the motivations for Leopold II to kill at least three million people in the Congo and sort of extract its rubber and tin and copper and so forth um, was in order to turn Brussels into a city more like Paris. Um, and it's very much... And, and, and that's, I think visually so much of it is not like Paris. And that's, that, that, that's one of the things that, that, that he sort of very much noticed at, at the time. And he, of course he wanted to be the king of a grand imperial state. And Brussels at the time probably looked something like Newcastle, um, you know, which is not an insult here. You know, a sort of uh, commercial, largely sort of medieval to 17th century city with a kind of 19th century industrial overlay, you know. That, that, um, and so you sort of have to imagine, I think, a sort of British equivalent would be, I think, if you sort of now had a gigantic triumphal arch in Newcastle, or like the biggest cathedral in Europe in Newcastle. Um, that's sort of, you know, the, the, the scale is mostly fairly kind of small in a lot of Brussels, and then suddenly you have these gigantic imperial boulevards, this gigantic cathedral, and this gigantic um, triumphal arch. And those of you that go into um, Brussels on a regular basis from, um, from St. Pancras will obviously know, you know, that, that, that's, that sudden vision you get as you pull into Brussels of this ridiculous, enormous palace that, you know, with the dome that's been renovated for longer than it took to build the entire thing, um, you know, sort of looming on the skyline. Um, and again, probably the only thing in Europe which can compare with this is the architecture of, uh, for want of a better word, 1930s totalitarianism is comparing it with the architecture of Stalin and the architecture of Hitler and those sudden leaps in scale that you have within somewhere like Berlin. Um, so probably the last time I was here, I think the last time I was here, was talking about Stalinist monuments. Yeah. And there's always this kind of sense when people talk about monuments in Eastern Europe that everyone must think about monuments all the time. That, you know, that... that, that um, that someone in like eastern Ukraine, if they're walking past like a monument to Felix Dzerzhinsky, must know who Felix Dzerzhinsky is. And of course, they generally don't any more than we know who Clive is when we walk past a monument to Clive. Um, and I think probably one of the things that would be interesting to see happen in Brussels, given how extreme its colonial architectural legacy is, is for it to be the first city that has to really start to interrogate and question that imperial legacy, after which I think a lot of other cities can follow. Owen was, um, was, was suggesting that, um, one of the, that Brussels needs to like, question and ask questions about yeah. its colonial legacy. And with other, are other people asking those questions? Since uh, last year, we have uh, Place Lumumba. Yes. So uh, it was a negotiation for, uh, that was going on for a long time uh, with local uh, activists. Um, because we have so many Leopold II monuments, we have huge uh, streets called Leopold II, which is horrible. I mean, in these times, it's it's crazy. It's almost, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's insane. So there's a lot of uh, people asking for it, and I was just looking it up now. Um, the the It's in Matonge. Matonge is like... Uh, the first uh, Congolese, uh, Congolese neighborhood in Brussels, um, African uh, um, neighborhood. And they selected uh, a place, like this needs to be uh, Lumumba, uh, the uh, Lumumba Square. Uh, they actually called another square 
uh, Lumumba, but I was looking it up on Google. Google was already calling it uh, future plus Lumumba. It has been calling it, if you look it up, it's future plus Lumumba for years now, and it's still on it. What, what is interesting is, so we have a lot of statues. One of them, uh, Dear Laura, uh, melted, which was amazing. Uh, but uh, many of the statues, especially the ones with just the heads uh, in big parts, uh, are being stolen all the time. Uh, during that genocide that happened in Congo, a lot of hands were cut. Um, and so a lot of the times uh, the statues will be found the day after with red hands, stuff like that. Uh, chop, chopped off if it's possible with the material. So there is a lot of, uh, there's more and more. And it's, it's like, I don't know, since I've been living in Brussels, I've been reading about it like every month. Oh, something else happened. Uh, and it's a little victory because at least you know you're not alone being offended uh, seeing a, a mass murderer's name all the time on statues and streets and everything. So that's what I wanted to add. Thank you. Thank you. I really would love to hear uh, Ellie on yes. Ellie's more words. Thank you. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll just do uh, one poem. This is uh, one of my most eclectic pieces. Just uh, follow me for the ride, please. From... Manipulation of our food for thought to the devastation of our mood for love for give us for all we can see is the black gold we eat it's alchemist we need give us a magician maybe he can set us free let's get a fortune teller tell us where to teleport at cause right now right now right now we be the dirty version of King Midas everything we touch dies this is too big a prize. We, we need an uprise. Revive the zombies. We need to up life. Down with the killers. Throw them off with some Gandhi like shivers. See, guru wisdom just might deliver. The final pull through to cross the Styx River. Get the Greek gods and hope they can g give us that reality check. They can, they can give us that reality check that we can use as a trigger. To shoot the silver bullet. To shoot the silver bullet, hands up gold diggers. The more we got, the more we turn into beggars. Who cares about their neighbor? Skyscraper builders forgot about the maker. Forgot about the tales of the Tower of Babel. Somehow we got jailed behind piles of paper. Rusty chains on our necks we don't want to get rid of. Don't want to get ripped off, ripped off eagles tripping over guilds while we're all being shipped off. As martyrs, we die there. As martyrs inspired by stories of conquerors and tyrants. And you know what? You know what? I'd rather die now than give up on my hope. I'd rather die now than give up on my hope. I'd rather die now than give up on my hope. It's all we can afford now. Let's hit the stores now. Newsflash bombs. Did you see in the headlines? Dead bodies, dollar signs, drugs divine. Let's worship the gods of wine. Rewind. How many more reruns? Rewind. Ask yourselves, ask yourselves, what do you want? Luxury and comfort and, and maybe a large trust fund, Arab heads on golden plates. Do you really want to get some of that green soil, get some of that sweet oil? Mr. Mr. They're shooting down my sisters, Mr. Mr. They're shooting down my brethren, Mr. Mr. Even your sugar's tasting bitter, Mr. Mr. How you come, you still getting richer. They're asking for solutions, but instead we're starting wars. They're asking contributions, but instead we're sending bombs. Thank you. That was beautiful, Ellie. Thank you. Um, so you are, as you mentioned at the beginning, you were a recent arrival to Brussels. How long have you been? How long have you um, been there? So I've been working in Brussels uh, in uh, for like four years now, and living uh, two years. So I started the day after the Brussels attacks in Molenbeek, which was where it was connected to. I started in mayhem and chaos. Uh, yeah. You were so the. So the work, your work that you're doing is in Mullenbeek? Um, so back then, so I'm a cultural worker and an organizer, and I started a new job in the heart of Molenbeek uh, in a cultural center. Uh, but I quit 
because I, yeah, the institutions, uh, the art form. Um, so Molenbeek is mostly French speaking, but the cultural, uh, the community center I was working for is Dutch speaking. So that was already pretty problematic because that means that the community center that is uh, uh, paid for with tax money cannot uh, have any direct contact with their community because they don't speak the same language. And no, we will not program French-speaking art because we are Dutch. And that's what we do. So a lot of money is uh, was being thrown and is still being thrown at... Um, empty events, basically. Um, and then the work that I was doing was uh, mostly, because I just, I, I just came in and I felt like, okay, I, I don't know the city that well, so I'm just going to look what this neighborhood and the people uh, would need. So I focused on, uh, on, the, on, on youth on, uh, and on hip hop. And I noticed that there was a lot of um, hip hop uh, activities, but they were, um, they passed them on on themselves. So it was just the, the youth by themselves, organizing it by themselves, um, which was beautiful because the community was really beautiful, but the art that came out of it uh, wasn't always as studied because they didn't come in contact with, uh, with professional, I don't know, rappers or, or, or writers or stuff like that. So uh, one of the projects that, that we did and I'm most proud of was um, a uh, a spot where we opened the doors on uh, the first Tuesdays of the month and just invited all the rappers and all the, uh, all the people in the neighborhood just to come in and use the material. And we just put music on and all they could do, they could use the dance floor or they could use... Um, or they could use the microphones, learn how to, to be a technician and, and maybe uh, develop their art in a more professional but less studied workshop kind of way. And it worked really well, uh, but only we were doing it uh, in collaboration with a, another group, a Brussels organization as well, really Brussels. It's like, like say, like this, this whole mix, these, these, these kids are 22, 23, they speak four languages fluently, they will start one sentence in, fr in French and finish it in Dutch with a little bit of English inter intertwined. So these guys were uh, organizing that, uh, and when it came to pay them, that became a real big problem for the institution. For me, I had money in my budget, and I thought like, okay, so let's spread it to the community, let's, let's pay the people uh, responsible for this event, let's, let's Let's, yeah, let's pay them. And that was a, a no-go. Uh, so that's when I quit. Which was the institution? <laughs> I'm very glad to say that name now. Uh, <laughs> the VK, uh, which they are changing. And, and, and things, I mean, things are changing. But it's uh, like they call it urban art forms, which is another word for people of color art forms, yeah. mostly people of other, uh, color art forms. And these art forms aren't as respected, mm. although they get a lot of new audiences that the community center is supposed to reach. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So, so you left? So I left, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, I, then have you, and then you created your own project? I, I was already organizing Mama's Open Mic, so uh, I organized Mama's Open Mic, which is a spoken word event in Antwerp. Uh, we have over 30 events a year, uh, if not more. Uh, we're having one right now in Brussels, so if I check my phone, it's because I'm checking on uh, if, if everybody arrived on time. Um, it's, it's one of the bigger open mics, in, I think, in the Benelux, because in, uh, in the summer, we do it every week, and we get at least 150 to 200 people. And since this year, we, do, we started doing it in Brussels. Uh, as well, which is also interesting because Antwerp is really Dutch speaking, so we could always mix uh, Dutch and English, but when you organize in Brussels, uh, things get much more complicated. Um, for example, a lot of the French speaking people don't necessarily speak English or don't necessarily speak Dutch. A lot of Dutchies, don't, Dutch speaking people don't necessarily speak French, although we all get classes in school we graduate and still don't speak the language. Uh, I learned it from TV. Um, and then uh, when you organize, for example, if I want to host now, I have this whole room of people not per se understanding uh, one language. So you have to have uh, hosts, 
that speak at least three languages and I can mix it up so everybody can get a little bit of the thing and then the open mic, that it happens, it, it's just open so you don't know, it can be English, French, Spanish, Arabic, I don't know, whoever gets on stage, that's what happens. But it's, it's been interesting uh, to see. And has, it, has this, this question of whose city Brussels belongs to, who, you know, who, who's, who, who does Brussels belong to? Presumably you must see that a lot, it must be a very intense experience for you because they all claim ownership over, over the city. I mean, uh, like, like I said also before, like I, and you, you, you started with asking that, like, do you feel Belgium? I only feel Belgium abroad. I've never felt Belgian in Belgium. Uh, I'm not Belgium even. I'm, I'm, I have a Portuguese identity card. I, it's just a piece of paper. Like I also said in my poem, it's just whatever. Uh, but I grew up my whole life in Belgium. I did my whole uh, scholar, everything, the school, everything in Belgium. Um, I would... If I would refer to myself, I would either refer to myself as an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur like a, a, from Antwerp, or now a, a, a Brussels person. And mostly because uh, the feeling that I had in Brussels is, is the first, the only city in Belgium where nobody ever asked me where I'm from because the standard is everybody's from somewhere else. So there's no, it's not, hello, where you, uh, what's your name and where you're from? That never happened to me in Brussels. Like I, I've had uh, friendships that after one year, they're like, oh, so you're Portuguese. Wow, that's amazing, you know? So it's not, it's not a relevant thing. If you're in Brussels, I feel like, and you have a house there, then you're from Brussels, then you're a, a Brusselaire. So, yeah, that's how I felt about it, and that's why I felt really welcome there. So, so when, when we were thinking, when I was thinking at the beginning of, um, of uh, focusing on Brussels, my 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 instinct was was that in some way Brussels was like a microcosm of Europe. You know, it was different languages, different people. It's like a little like prototype for Europe. And um, that it was that in some way it was full of languages, full of people, different neighborhoods, people living alongside each other, balancing all sorts of different political issues. New immigrants. I mean, all the issues that were being fought over and discussed in Brussels were in some way being fought over and discussed around. Europe, and I wondered if uh, does that make you like uber Europeans in Brussels? And do you have any thoughts on reflections on that? I mean, is it a very naive way of of thinking about Brussels that it's the sort of the prototype for Europe? Does it does it feel that it rings true at all? I guess that's that was being thrown out to you all as well as any re thoughts and reflections. Europe does not want to be represented. Europe is a single market is an economic and a political agreement, and everything that has to do with imagining it is refused by the nation states. So in fact, it is a, it is a, a network of member states, education, there's no European university, there's no big European museum, there's no European storytelling. And so at that level, Europe refuses to be represented because the nation states are the boss in Europe. And you see, uh, uh, they, want, they want to represent their tribes. And they want to maintain representation at the tribal state. The advantage of Brussels is that there is no Brussels tribe. And that there are different tribes in Brussels. And that you see that... that the, the, so Brussels, even if Europe doesn't want to be represented, Brussels needs to be represented in a country that thinks that it can be represented by two tribes, but a territory that is not belonging to one of the... It's not Flanders and it's not Wallonia. And so, in fact, for Brussels, it is necessary if you want... So the Brusselaire, which is this hybrid uh, formula, is, 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 a, is something that is representing by these kind of, of activities that are based on difference. It's not tribal, what has been shown that uh, Europe is the, Brussels is the only city that can become a capital of Europe. Mm -hmm. And if Europe doesn't want to express itself for the sake of Brussels in an evaporating, it cannot remain the capital of Belgium. And so even if that's not the plan of Europe, and it's, we have shown it, not Frankfurt, not Strasbourg is, is going to do that, not even Luxembourg, in fact. So the only place where Europeanness can be constructed as a, as a, as a symbolic or a, as, a, as an image uh, project 
is, I think, in that city, and I am an activist to, to make it uh, not only allow everything to happen, but to make it, uh, uh, let's say, uh, an official cultural program. And then you have to say the Brussels region, the Brussels regional government has no cultural competences. The two tribes of the north and the south are operating in that city with their schools, with their community centers, uh, as you told. So we don't have the instruments. There's a, there's a vacuum in yeah, the city. Yeah, there's a and that's, well, the vacuum is, of course, is the best place yeah. to invent something. Yeah. Europe, Europeanness, whatever that may mean, but uh, an empty signifier is the best way to, mm. to, to, to foster creativity, basically. Mm. And the fact that we don't have a strong nationalism in the city helps. And so you have to, uh, I think Europe has a great weakness of refusing to become Europe. But I want to, I want to, because we've spoken a lot from the stage. Does anyone, there's a, there's a question over there. Yeah, less of a question um, and, and more of a kind of provocation. So it, it seems to me that what, what, what I've witnessed tonight is a sort of um, a deconstruction of a state. Uh, uh, the nation state, yes, thank you. Um, a kind of elaboration of, of Brussels uh, in its many modalities. Uh, but then suddenly uh, we, we have this other idea of Europe interjected into the mix. And, and we're supposed to make sense of it. Um, and I would, I would want to counter Eric's formulation that Brussels is the logical capital uh, of, of, an, of a reimagined Europe. When I looked at, at the, Eric's presentation, what, what I saw was a network, a network of cities. And it's this idea of the city-state as an entity that counters or contests the nation-state. But I wanted to return to this idea of the network and that actually the capital city is part of the vocabulary and the colonizing structure of the nature-state, the nation-state, and that a decentered, non-capitalized Europe that recognizes its network capability, but is open and questioning and humble to the rest of the world, that then starts to be a reimagined Europe that I would be much more interested in prosecuting. I mean, I, I suppose well, there's a certain amount of things we've had, and particularly in Britain in the last couple of years, of people doing this kind of. I think they started off doing this ironically and then started to do it seriously, of like, London should declare independence. And I think the dynamics are different here to in Belgium. And I think that the idea of sort of Brussels independence is probably more tempting. But in the, in the British case, the sort of idea of the sort of, the, the sort of wonderful city-state should go off on its own is really kind of, you know, I think enormously sort of dangerous and damaging. Um, and I don't think it's what you're saying. That's not why I'm, I'm not accusing you. Um, but more the, the, the sort of idea of these kind of wonderful city-states should sort of go off on their own um, can be quite a sort of narcissistic and almost sort of nihilistic approach, kind of, a, a sort of letting the rest of the country kind of rot a lot of the time. But I think in the case of Belgium, because there's this, this sort of polarisation between those two, those two halves, it's a different issue. If you look for narcissism, you find them in countries much more easily than in cities. Historically? No, no, actually. Today. I mean, if you see the media, etc., if you look at, I mean, narcissism is, is, the, is the essence of a nation state. I think it's quite hard to find a more narcissistic city than London, and I love London. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a wonderful place to end because um, it's quite late. I've just caught an I've just caught uh, Owen's watch, and I've realised how late it is. Um, I, I, the time has flown. It's been totally extraordinary to um, to be to be serenaded by Miss Ellie, to be talked by um, by Eric to be uh, kind of given a, like a larger historical context and architectural context by Erin. Um, it's been a pleasure for me to learn a lot and thank you so much to all of you for your wonderful contributions. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation. When I started initially on my journey of research into the heart of Brussels, I was fascinated by the divisions between the Flemish, the French and the EU sides of the city. But as I learnt along the way, these superficial divisions are only the tip of a much more complex iceberg. A huge thanks again to all my guests that evening. 
for their contributions. And to filmmaker Angela Al-Suleiman from the brilliant Cinemaximilian, which works with refugees and asylum seekers in Brussels, who also joined us on Skype as part of the live event. Thanks too to Els Rochette, Sylvie Joy, Tunde Adifio and Hendrik de Schmidt for introducing me to such wonderful artists and thinkers in Brussels, to Bart Brosius and the general representation of the government of Flanders, Josephine Rousseau from Wallonia Brussels International and the Embassy of Belgium for their support, and finally to Rich Mix in the narcissistic city of London for hosting the event. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. Our intro music is from Dancing Fakir by Maruf Majidi. Our theme song is called On the Edge of Your Spring, written by Sasha Relukovic, with music arranged by Andy Hall. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast, or by going to our media section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.